Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to POTS podcast. Hello, fellow POTS patients and beautiful people who care about POTS patients. I'm Jill Brooke, and this is an episode of the POTS Practitioners. Today, we are so lucky to have one of the foremost experts on POTS, like in the entire galaxy. Dr. Svetlana Blitchdin is a neurologist specializing in autonomic disorders. She is the director and founder of the Dysautonomia Clinic, where she provides consultations for patients with all kinds of dysautonomia and related conditions. Full disclosure, I work for her there. Dr. Blitchdeen also serves as a clinical assistant professor of neurology at the University of Buffalo Jacobs School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. Dr. Blitchdeen completed her neurology training at the one and only Mayo Clinic Graduate School of Medicine. She received her medical degree from the University of Buffalo School of Medicine. She has received so many honors and awards that it would take me the entire podcast just to list them. She volunteers as a medical advisor to Standing Up to Pots, Dysautonomia International, Dysautonomia Information Network, and the Ehlers-Danlos Society. You may have seen her quoted in the media lately because she has become a leading expert on dysautonomia in long COVID. Dr. Blitchdeen has also authored book chapters on POTS and numerous articles about POTS in the medical research. In my opinion, some of the very most important and helpful research on POTS has been done by Dr. Blitchdeen. Not only has she written articles educating her peers that POTS is not just anxiety or not just deconditioning, but she was among the very first to publish about autoimmunity in POTS, which has become a huge area of interest. She was the first to publish case reports about POTS after HPV shots. She was the first to show that correcting low vitamin B1 levels can occasionally be a huge help to select POTS patients. Her research team just presented a poster about some exciting new dietary findings that are the first of their kind. She was the first to study pregnancy in POTS. And so we are all way better off for all of her valuable work. So Dr. Blitchstein, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Jill, thank you for inviting me today and all of the work you do on behalf of the Satanomia community. Well, I consider you such a thought leader on POTS. And whenever you have a new publication come out, I'm always eager to see what you've been working on. I'm like, oh, what has Dr. Blitchdeen been thinking about? I know it's going to be good. And in February of 2021, you had a new article published in the Journal of Neurology that is called, Is POTS a Central Nervous System Disorder? And this article blew me away because it pulled together so much evidence from different places, and especially because it includes an updated model of POTS that I have never seen before, and I think it's really elegant and brilliant. I know I'm always wondering how the heck all these different aspects of POTS might fit together, and your model actually shows a way that it could. 
So I just want to say, hey, listeners, if you want to be able to see this article and see the model that we're talking about, a link to it is in the show notes. So Dr. Blitchstein, the traditional view of POTS is that it's a problem that's limited to only the peripheral nervous system. Your new article argues that it involves both the peripheral and the central nervous system. Can you start by just reminding us what are these two parts of the nervous system and what that would mean? Sure. So thank you for this uh, very long introduction. (laughs) I try to do a good work when it comes to research and patient care. There is still so much to learn and it's enough work for everyone involved. So the nervous system consists of central and peripheral pathways. Central uh, nervous system refers to the brain and the spinal cord. And peripheral refers to the nerve fibers that innervate your body and all of the organs, including the nerve roots that come out from the spinal column. So POTS has been viewed traditionally as a disorder of the peripheral nervous system because it may affect small nerve fibers, including the autonomic nerve fibers. We view peripheral neuropathy in the same fashion. We say that it affects the peripheral nerves and does not affect spinal cord or brain. So as I mentioned in the article, back when POTS was described by Philip Lowe for Mayo Clinic in the early 90s, he wrote in his papers that POTS involves brainstem dysregulation. And brainstem is the part of the brain that's responsible for a lot of the vital functions of the body in where central autonomic controls are located. I thought it's important to reframe POTS from the standpoint of brainstem dysregulation and brain disorder rather than continuing down the old notion that it's a disorder only of the peripheral nervous system. So as a shorthand, I guess the way I've been kind of thinking of it is your article says, okay, the brain is now involved in this too. And at first I thought that sounded a little scary, but then I realized, oh no, wait, this means there's more opportunities to research this, more opportunities to treat it, and more opportunities to get people to even believe that this is real. Sure. POTS is defined by cardiovascular symptoms. And it's in the definition of POTS. So it's a heart rate elevation by at least 30 bits per minute from supine to standing in adults and 40 bits per minute in teens. And we need an absence of drop in blood pressure. Those are the diagnostic criteria, two out of three for POTS. However, those of us who see a lot of patients know that it's actually the neurologic symptoms, such as chronic dizziness, such as fatigue, brain fog, headache, and sleep disturbance, that are actually more disabling for many patients than the tachycardia or palpitations. So why do we label these symptoms as central nervous system? Because all of them come from the brain and the brainstem rather than peripheral nerves. And in that sense, you know, we've had research from our colleagues in migraine field and in chronic fatigue syndrome field that reframe these disorders as uh, central nervous system disorders. And I think it's very important for us to follow those studies from that literature and not to miss an opportunity to uh, reframe POTS 
as a central nervous system disorder as well, because in my opinion, it is. Your paper says that central nervous system involvement in POTS is also supported by some abnormal findings on MRIs or other types of neuroimaging. Can you talk about what you've seen with that and what it means to you as a neurologist? Sure. So when you do MRI of the brain on patients with POTS or patients with migraine, their MRI is going to be interpreted as unremarkable, which means there would be no abnormalities present on the routine MRI of the brain that's available to us as clinicians. And now if we carry out research using neuroimaging, then all sorts of neuroimaging tools and techniques become available to us that are not available to clinicians. And so if you look at my paper, unfortunately, there have been only a few studies. I, I believe I outlined them all in the paper on autonomic disorders and neuroimaging, which I reviewed. I believe that one study is very important, and it only involved 11 patients. And it's the study by Wagner published in 2019 that used MR spectroscopy and noted an area of potential neuroinflammation called in the area called dorsal medulla. So dorsal medulla is part of the brain that's between the spinal cord and the cortex that contains very important structures like nuclei of the vagus nerve and the pathways for the sympathetic nervous system. Of course, being a small study, you know, it has to be reproduced in the future larger studies. But I think this topic is very important because now we're seeing preliminary evidence that's emerging that there may be neuroinflammation at the level of brainstem in this area called dorsal medulla in patients with spots. So we need confirmation of these studies. But certainly this is the area where I think researchers should go with. Oh, yeah, because you said a couple of things that set off lights in my head, which was sympathetic versus parasympathetic stimulation and vagus nerve. And we hear those things come up all the time. So maybe this is a good time to get into the fact that your paper proposes a new and updated model of POTS, where you lay out a chain of events where each event plausibly could lead to the next. And it incorporates many different observations around POTS that previously, to me anyway, felt very unrelated or random or just mysterious. And you tie them all together in one elegant hypothesis. And this got me so excited. When my husband read your proposed model, he said it felt like the end of a Sherlock Holmes story where Sherlock explains how the whole thing happened and he accounts for every clue in the mystery. But your new proposed model of POTS begins with autoimmunity. Can you talk about that in POTS? Sure. So, well, in science, we would love to tie everything together to present a logical hypothesis. But it's very important to emphasize that my proposed model is a hypothesis and one way we can think about all of the complexities in the pathogenesis of POTS. Certainly, some mechanisms have been identified more clearly than others, like hypovolemia, like sympathetic overactivity, and probably even autoimmunity. But other facts, like aberration in the central nervous system, have not. 
And that's ultimately where I have to put more research effort. So because we have evidence of the central nervous system involvement, we have to explore that. In terms of autoimmunity, as you know, in the past five, six years, the, uh, there has been tremendous interest exploring autoimmunity in POTS. So after seeing so many POTS patients in my clinic, I observed that quite a few of them had comorbid autoimmune conditions and a positive ANA. Now, positive ANA is certainly something that can occur in healthy individuals. So it's called a nonspecific finding. But when I studied this more systematically and compared the numbers to the general population, what we ended up having is a more accurate picture. And we found that the rate of positive ANA and comorbid autoimmune conditions like Hashimoto's, rheumatoid arthritis, and others were more prevalent in my cohort of POTS patients than the general population. And following that, as you know, more specific antibodies to the autonomic nervous system were discovered by Dr. David Cam and others, which included alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-2, beta-1, and muscarinic antibodies, among others. I think we have to think about autoimmunity. And even though right now at this time, we do not have one or even two specific antibodies for POTS. I think autoimmunity as a general process needs to be strongly considered. And you know, formation of antibodies is such a important concept because it's one of the main causes of small fiber neuropathy, which is also a common comorbidity with POTS. So I, I begin this with autoimmunity and maybe even genetic predisposition, if you follow my figure, because some people are naturally predisposed towards autoimmune disorders and towards antibody formation. And so it's possible that it begins with this genetic predisposition that may be triggered by external stimuli like a viral infection, like COVID or flu or mononucleosis, but could also be other events like trauma from surgery or a car accident. And then suddenly there is a chain of events that leads to this chronic illness with, with multiple angles and various presentations that results in these diagnoses of dysautonomia, mass cell activation syndrome, small fiber neuropathy. In my paper, I try to take these concepts and mechanisms that have been pretty much agreed on, and some are hypothesized, like reduce TSF volume. And so I try to synthesize them all together, but we have to understand this is a hypothesis and something that I think can be a workable model. And this, in reality, it's going to be much more complex. Couple of factors might be at play at the same time. Maybe they make sense together. Maybe they don't. But I think with the antibodies, it makes sense because it can both cause small fiber neuropathy and then it can lead to kidney problems. And then maybe some antibodies can even cross the blood brain barrier, which in and of itself may be dysfunctional in those with connective tissue disorders, especially. So I try to synthesize with the best knowledge that I have, uh, but certainly I, I wouldn't claim that to be <laughs> mystery unraveled, more like a blueprint to follow, to follow the yellow brick road to, uh, to unravel the answers.
Yeah. Well, if it's okay, I would love to take a little trip down the yellow brick road with you and try to explain it to our listeners. And like you said, there's many pieces of it that we are already familiar with. And we already feel comfortable with things like the low blood volume and too much sympathetic tone and things like that. But maybe we can walk through it and tie it all together the way that your model explains. So it starts with autoimmunity. And then the next part is that you, you through several steps, get from autoimmunity to hypovolemia or low blood volume via an effect on the kidneys. Do you mind explaining those few steps and how you could plausibly get from one to the other? Sure. So it was from the work by Satish Raj and his colleagues from Vanderbilt that we learned that there are distinct abnormalities in the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which is a hormonal pathway that controls blood volume and sodium absorption in the body. One of the mechanisms that they propose is denervation of the kidneys, which results in hypovolemia. So what is denervation? It means that kidneys, of course, are also innervated by the small nerve fibers, and they're also profused by the arteries. And if there is abnormal vasodilation or vasoconstriction, and if there is a comorbid small fiber neuropathy, which means small nerve fibers are either damaged or dysfunctional, it would make sense that the kidneys would be innervated by dysfunctional or damaged nerve fibers, resulting in turn in the abnormal hormone secretion that's responsible for blood volume. So I think either denervation from small fiber neuropathy and or vasodilation, vasoconstriction that leads to hypoperfusion, meaning the kidneys are not normally perfused. So there may be this alteration in the hormones secreted, and this can result in hypovolemia. So small fiber neuropathy is commonly caused by antibodies that attack the nerve fibers and destroy it. So that's how autoimmunity is connected to small fiber neuropathy and possibly kidney denervation. But the most common cause of small fiber neuropathy in the United States is diabetes and glucose intolerance. So I think it's important to mention that to your listeners. That's why we check for possible diabetes in patients who present with small fiber neuropathy and complaints of neuropathic pain. So I think that that's how I view this. And fortunately, on that step, we have articles and studies from Vanderbilt to kind of prove that point in the diagram. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now your next few steps of your model were a surprise to me because they showed how low blood volume could result in some changes to parts of the brain. And when I read that, I was thinking, what? I thought low blood volume just made me feel terrible. I didn't realize it could also potentially lead to some of these effects on parts of my brain. Do you mind explaining how those few steps might happen? Sure. So this is the less studied part <laughs> that I discuss. We know that there is a link between orthostatic headache and POTS. 
What is orthostatic headache? It's the kind of headache that develops when the person is upright and then improves when the person is supine. And at least 30% of patients with spots report orthostatic headache. Now, there are case series of patients who had a spinal leak, which you know means that spinal fluid is leaking out of your spinal cord, whether it's spontaneous or traumatic. And this results in intracranial hypotension. So we know that this condition exists. It's a rare cause of orthostatic headache. And these patients can be essentially cured with a blood patch sealing the leak. Or if the blood patch doesn't work, it can be a fibrin glue that can leak, uh, that can seal this leak. So how can we apply that knowledge to POTS patients? Most POTS patients, I want to mention this, do not have a spinal leak. So when the orthostatic headache is not associated with the leak, it was also proposed by previous researchers on orthostatic headache is that there may be a reduction of the spinal venous pressure and the, and the CSF volume. And so how does CSF volume relate to plasma volume? Well, we know that plasma volume is reduced in POTS. And plasma volume, interestingly enough, is influenced by the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system as well. And in some of the studies on animals, it's been shown that it's the systemic angiotensin that's responsible for CSF volume control in dehydrated animals, not the brain angiotensin. When I researched this topic, of course, I looked at all of the available literature there. And I think it's logical to assume that some contribution of CSF volume comes from the plasma volume hormonal control. And it's, I think, logical also to assume that it perhaps why when you give saline to a POTS patient or when you ask them to drink a lot of fluids and, and increase their salt, that perhaps some of it actually ends up being in the CSF. We know from migraine research that the brain is very sensitive in terms of sensing dehydration or low sodium or low glucose. That's why migraineurs are quite sensitive to these as triggers of migraine. So I think we have some preliminary evidence to suggest that that might be the case. Now, we should also remember that the dural tube, which is the spinal cord and its covering, which is the dura, can also be more stretchable, so to speak, or compliant in patients, especially with connective tissue disorders like Ehlers-Danlos. So it's possible, hypothetically speaking, that low blood volume leads to low CSF volume, which is then sensed by the brain vasculature, resulting in chronic cerebral hypoperfusion. And when the brain is chronically hypoperfused, I think just like in the example of kidneys, it's possible that the brain may become altered structurally and functionally in order to maintain its homeostasis. And this may lead to altered central autonomic networks, which I think in turn can lead to sympathetic overactivity. 
And this increased sympathetic overactivity is known to be pro-inflammatory, according to the work done by Dr. Kevin Tracy and others who described the neural reflex. This neural reflex essentially means that decreased parasympathetic activity through vagus nerve and increased parasympathetic nervous activity may lead to inflammation, possibly at this dorsal medulla and maybe other brain areas and probably systemically as well. So that's how I put things together. Of course, I might be wrong, <laughs> but I think we have preliminary evidence from research on neuroimaging in migraine, neuroimaging in orthostatic intolerance disorders and chronic fatigue syndrome, as well as some other research studies that I incorporate in this review that point towards this kind of model that we have to think about. We absolutely have to include brain as part of the POTS pathophysiology. Yeah, absolutely. And you're making me think that everything that I try to do to stay feeling good might also be important to do just for brain health. So when I make sure to drink my fluids and eat my salt and wear my compression stockings, that's not just about feeling better. That might also be about brain health. Is that maybe what your model implies? Yeah, absolutely. I always explain to patients that the brain is not separate from the body. The brain is a part of the body. And that's why things that are physiologically happening in your body will be ultimately translated into physiologic changes in the brain. The brain is going to sense that and will let you know. How does the brain let you know? Well, by having these symptoms, headache, fatigue, brain fog, sleep disturbance, mood problems. You know, if you notice your mood going down, you feel depressed, the, all of the stressors in your life are exactly the same, but you're just not feeling right. There might be physiological basis for your depressed mood or anxious mood. Are you hydrated? Did you have a meal? Is your sugar dropping? It doesn't have to be very low. It can just be dropping for the brain to sense that and to send special messages that may translate into a migraine or dizziness or high heart rate to kind of let you know that something is off in the body. I think in lay terms, that makes sense, which is why, you know, if you increase fluids and salt intake, this uh, leads not only to improved blood pressure and heart rate, but people report that their brain fog is better, that maybe even their headache improved and they can think more clearly. Yeah, well, okay, so like I said, I love your model because it can explain so many different parts of POTS that previously felt like unrelated puzzle pieces that didn't fit anywhere. And I'm especially thinking about how your model accounts for the three POTS subtypes that some physicians like to use, the neuropathic POTS, the hypovolemic POTS, and the hyperadrenergic POTS. It can account for so much of what we observe about POTS. But let me ask you this, what does your model say about POTS patients all having such different symptoms from one another? Like, can it account for why some patients have worse GI symptoms while other patients 
have more neurological symptoms, for example? In terms of symptoms, when it comes down, you know, it's a collection of symptoms from different systems. And I think at the end of the day, when we have these large studies, questionnaires and surveys, there are going to be certain symptoms that are prevalent in almost all of the patients, right? In at least 80%. And so this would be your dizziness, fatigue, palpitations, brain fog. And of course, migraine headache is one of the most common comorbidities. So I think this again points to a central nervous system etiology because most of these complaints do come from the brain. And when, when you take a look at the medications that we use, you'll notice that a lot of them also have CNS activity. Those are the targeted therapies that we use and they can be quite helpful. So once again, you know, you may have different complaints uh, from GI, uh, genitourinary systems and immunologic, but understand that the autonomic nervous system is involved in the control of all of our body function and perfusion. And the autonomic nervous system certainly ties into your immune system and this process of inflammation. So I think a couple of things emerge with the research on POTS is the abnormal autonomic nervous system function, abnormal immune system regulation, possible inflammation, and possible neuroinflammation. So you and your article mentioned some central nervous system targeted therapies that can help POTS. Can you mention what some of those are? Sure. So uh, I and others, we have used stimulants that are traditionally used for ADHD, and that can help with brain fog and mental and physical fatigue associated with spots. We have used sympatholytics that act on the central nervous system, like clonidine, that reduces sympathetic overactivity coming out from the brainstem. We have used medication for migraine and headache prevention like tapiramate and gabapentin. We've used tricyclics like amitriptyline and antihistamines like periactin and doxepin. And all of these medications have activity in the central nervous system. But we also have non-medication approach like biofeedback, a neural retraining program and various rehabilitation therapies that help POTS patients to essentially rewire their brain, so to speak. So I think CNS therapies can be quite effective in patients with POTS, and they're commonly employed by those of us who specialize in autonomic nervous system disorders. Your model also made me think about some of the diet and lifestyle approaches that are getting increasingly recognized as making a difference for autoimmunity. And so I think we're going to make some podcast episodes just about that, because seeing that maybe POTS is not as heterogeneous as we thought, you know, I have to laugh because it seems like in the past, almost every single journal article about POTS starts with like almost the same sentence, right? And I can see you're smiling because I think you know what I'm going to say, that it, it always says POTS is a heterogeneous disorder 
of the autonomic nervous system. And I think if I am reading your model right, that maybe it's less heterogeneous than we thought, that maybe autoimmunity is the thing that's starting it off when we thought that it was pregnancy or infection or virus or accident or concussion or all these different things that maybe those are just a bunch of different ways to trigger autoimmunity. Is that part of what you think might be going on? Yeah, so I use this phrase also, <laughs> that POTS is a heterogeneous disorder. I think this word implies that it can start from for various reasons and may have various underlying mechanisms on how you get there. But I think once you get there to this diagnosis of POTS and all of the common symptoms, then I think it's almost like a common pathway. Uh, like uh, like a common pathway for chronic fatigue or chronic pain, that there is an activation that has been set forth by some kind of trigger on a likely genetically predisposed host. And then when things are set in motion, I think it likely looks uh, pretty much the same, whether you have a comorbid rheumatoid arthritis or whether it's comorbid Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. However, of course, you know, when you have a defined autoimmune disorder, then of course you're going to be treated for that. And that may certainly help POTS or maybe even resolve it completely. That's not the case for those who do not have these diagnoses. You know, that's not the case for at least 30% of patients with POTS who have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. My experience was that, you know, I took 17 years to get diagnosed and the whole time I kept getting checked for autoimmune disorders, but none was ever found until so long later. And what that taught me is that autoimmune conditions are not always that easy to catch, are they? Like you have to know exactly which one to test for sometimes in order to find it. Is that correct? Yeah, I think there is also a huge category, and, and it does exist in rheumatology, when a patient has not qualified for any defined rheumatologic disorder, when a patient has not met criteria for lupus or Sjogren's or rheumatoid arthritis, or even celiac disease, and yet they still have a lot of these manifestations and some kind of positive autoimmune marker. And so there is a diagnostic label in rheumatology that I also use. It's called undifferentiated connective tissue disorder. And I think I like it in a way because it says, well, something is wrong with your connective tissue and you have evidence of autoimmunity, whether through positive ANA or elevated tetrate or elevated C-reactive protein or some other antibody. So that's not normal. Some of my colleagues say, well, you know, it's nonspecific. It can occur in a healthy population. And my response to that always is, but these are not healthy people. If the person is completely asymptomatic, or let's say a, a person has a knee pain and nothing else, and all of a sudden there is a positive ANA in low titer at 1 to 160, let's say, then sure, you would say, you know, this may be nonspecific. But then let's take another patient who has years of joint pain, including the knee pain, and then years of fatigue and maybe just developed urinary frequency and nausea and gastroparesis. 
and has elevated ANA 1 to 160, then it's much harder to say, well, this is non-specific because those are the same symptoms that are highly prevalent in autoimmune disorders. So we have this general category of undifferentiated connective tissue disorder a diagnosis where a lot of our patients fall. And some of my colleagues in rheumatology do treat them with, you know, mild immunomodulatory therapy. I'm not going to name what those may be because it may be different for everyone, but certainly having a plan with non-pharmacologic therapies like a healthy lifestyle, a diet that reduces inflammation, exercise, improved sleep, all of these things are good, not just for you, but they're also good for your immune system, your autoimmune predisposition, and certainly your brain. Right, definitely. Boy, well, your new model of POTS looks brilliant to us at standing up to POTS, and we're so grateful that someone like you is working on all of this for us. We just have to ask, did it take you years to come up with this, or did this just pop into your head one day, or like watching the long COVID patients develop POTS? What made this come together for you? <laughs> Thanks, Jill. So this paper, of course, didn't come out in the spur of the moment. It was a gradual process that I was able to complete during the lockdown last year. And I've been following the literature on POTS, migraine, chronic fatigue syndrome, and other syndromes related to dysautonomia. So I've been putting it all together as a result of following this research observing trends in my patients and trying to make sense of this complex disorder that is POTS. Of course, I have to thank my patients for challenging me with their questions and being very educated and inquisitive. One of my patients, a retired attorney with years of autonomic dysfunction, asked me to explain how autonomic dysfunction can cause her to have that much fatigue and brain fog. And I explained it to her briefly using these concepts of autoimmunity, brain hypoperfusion, low blood volume, neuroinflammation. And then I just realized that I don't believe I've seen it being discussed in any of the review articles that I've read. So I decided to go for it. Besides my patients and all of the researchers whose work allowed me to utilize their studies for my review, I'd like to thank the Journal of Neurology for publishing it. I find that publishing studies on POTS is still very difficult because many journals are simply not interested in the subject matter, and let alone a review that takes POTS to a different model. So, of course, it was gradual work. It took a long time, but I think it's important that we don't remain are standing on the same spot, you know, in research, I think it's important that we keep pushing the envelope and not concentrate too much on the previous findings. And perhaps we should continue further and elaborate using what is already known so that, of course, we don't reinvent the wheel. But like I said, this concept of brainstem dysregulation, it's not new at all. I mean, it's been there since the early 90s. I think research didn't have enough tools to explore it. And now that we have all these neuroimaging techniques, we have functional MRI and we have PET scan and we have MR spectroscopy, 
now we can go ahead and really study this. Oh, that's good. Okay. And I just want to remind any researchers out there that Standing Up to Pots has research grants if you want to study this stuff. Well, Dr. Blitzstein, I know you need to get back to your clinic, but because I'm on your research team, I know that you work day, night, evening, weekends, holidays to keep great research going. And we are so glad to have your brain power on our side. Your research and your work has definitely improved my life and I know many others as well. So thank you for all that you do and thank you for being here today. Thank you, Jill, for having me and thank you for working on behalf of all the Satanomia patients. Of course, I have to give you a special thank you for doing an excellent job with patients of the Satanomia Clinic and also doing an excellent job with your research support. But we all need to take breaks. You know, when you say, well, you've been working day and night, weekends, I'm thinking, I don't think that's very good or healthy. So we all need a break. And I encourage everyone, starting from myself, <laughs> to disconnect and, you know, take walks and do something else, have hobbies, because these topics are very overwhelming and are not going to be solved, I think, in a day or two or even a year. So we need to take care of ourselves and our brains so that we can push forward. Wise, wise words. Okay, listeners, there you have your doctor's orders to go get some balance in your life. Hey, also listeners, remember that as always, this is not medical advice. Consult your astrologer about what's right for you. Okay, just kidding, listeners. I was saying if you were listening there, consult your physician or your healthcare team about what's right for you. But thank you for listening. Please consider subscribing because it helps us get found by more people like you. But remember, you're not alone and please join us again soon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, www.standinguptopots.org slash podcast. And I would add, if you have any ideas or topics you'd like to suggest, send them in. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots.